0: Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Nakhchang Rinpoche. Chapter 12, part 2. My time came in the improvisational instrumental sections when Steve took off into flights of rhapsodic bass virtuosity, leading me to provide a simple pulse. So there we were, We launched in with Rolling and Tumbling, which was an exciting piece with Steve playing slide on bass and me wailing on harp. The audience were almost all grinning at us and we knew that this was how it was going to be in most places. Ron, as ever, was the star and when he took off, people started yelling occasional ecstatic fragments of language that I never quite caught. It's an amazing thing to see an audience enjoying what you're playing. It's also surreal because somehow you can't quite believe it. I could believe it of Ron and Steve because although they were under 18, they were entirely professional. Ron had been a world-class player at the age of 11, and he was now 16. Steve, almost 18, was moving steadily in that direction, having advanced rapidly since meeting Ron. Playing next to Ron was an inspiration for us all, because he was Bach, Mozart and Paganini rolled into one. He was all four kings, Beebe, Albert, Freddie, and Earl. He was Robert Johnson, Muddy Waters and Buddy Guy. There was almost nothing that he wasn't when it came to music. He played piano too and often played piano riffs on guitar and guitar riffs on piano. Between songs it occurred to me that it was just as well that I was not convinced by the illusion of what I could have taken myself to be. I was a focus of attention because of Ron and Steve. I might have a voice but I'd be nobody without them. This was not Buddhist humility. I never went in for humility, Buddhist or otherwise. It was simply my own take on realism. I did not feel unworthy or as if Savage Cabbage could get a better vocalist. I was happy to be exactly where I was but had no sense of the applause having anything to do with me. Cries of execration would have been upsetting. I'd never had to deal with execration since being hit almost weekly when I was young at Netherfield, on the basis that I had a German mother. I was once so badly beaten up that the police had to be called in. Then the assaults came to an end. So, what was this all about? Who was I? I had no idea apart from the subjects that obsessed me. Buddhism, blues and the arts. Meditation would eventually reveal the nature of what looked out of the senses to witness these phenomena. But in the meantime, where was the reality behind the characters who inhabited my name? the failure at mathematics and sport, the Buddhist and the bluesman, the realist explorer and the surrealist poet, the stammerer and the fellow quick with linguistics, Mr English and Herr German, the quasi early 20th century English gentleman and the hippie with starched and ironed Levi's. The fellow with the Edwardian smoking jacket and the man in the white suit. I was an empty space who inhabited images that were both what I was and somehow extraneous in terms of a space that was fundamental. This description could sound like a person with an identity crisis, if you were to analyse it in that way. But I had no sense of crisis. I was as happy as I could ever remember being, but it felt like being in an unstructured play in a theatre shaped like the world. There was no visceral paucity in my passions, but somehow my passions never defined me too severely outside the moment. Whatever the passion in the moment, it soared like a dragon. Maybe because I was born in the water dragon year of the Tibetan calendar. Passion was always contextual and there never seemed to be any conflict between passions. Whether being with Lindy, riding my chopped BSA, playing bass, walking in the woods, writing poetry, painting drawing or sitting silently in the branches of a yew tree i was always utterly absorbed so much for stream of consciousness pontification passion is all well and good when everything seems well and good but what of tragedy i'd seen that or whatever seemed tragic to a child the departure of Alice for Herefordshire, the death of Mr Love and the departure of Annalee for Switzerland. I'm not sure whether I thought that I was Dr Blues the survivor or the nascent Buddhist attempting to take impermanence in his stride, but standing on stage that night I had no idea that the locomotive of lacerating loss and lachrymose lamentation was hurtling down the tracks behind me. Brigadier Dale and his good lady wife wished to know who was courting their daughter Lindy. They called her Linda and I was to call her Linda in their hearing. They did not approve of having their daughter's name abbreviated, even though she'd abbreviated her name herself. That should have been a warning. I was invited for afternoon tea and cake. I went. I ate. The next day, my relationship with Lindy was over. I was deemed an entirely inappropriate liaison. I was a long-haired lout, an irredeemable drug-ingesting pervert and probably a depraved criminal. They took no account of my suit or polite speech. They took no account of anything other than an appearance they instinctively loathed. Lindy was commanded not even to speak with me at school. But on that point she rebelled. Lindy did continue to speak with me, But meetings beyond the school gate ceased. So why did I think impermanence was such a wonderful notion? Everything and everyone came and went, wasn't that the idea? And I was supposed to sit back and see it all as illusion? Brilliant Buddhist I turned out to be. Still, no one told me i was supposed to like it it's just how it was and how it always would be you got attached to some aspect of reality and then sooner or later reality detached you when i sat in silence and let go of thought it was fine and I could often be happy simply enjoying the colours and sounds of the world. I could laugh too, because I could easily find myself amused by a variety of phenomena. Still, taking up a positivist, eternalist religion would do nothing to change the fact that Lindy was lost as a romantic partner. I was no Godam Gottfried Leibniz thinking that everything is for the best in the best of all possible worlds was deranged. Gottfried Leibniz was an idiot, hardly surprising that Voltaire lampooned his philosophy in Candide. So this was the suffering of which Shakyamuni Buddha spoke. Well, I'd been there before and here I was again apart from the fact that the musical part of my life was better than it had ever been. I decided that it would be an act of imbecility to let the tragedy of my love life prove detrimental to Savage Cabbage. So whenever I got to feeling too miserable about the loss of Lindy, I sat or I sang. I sat and repeatedly let go of the Lindy thoughts. Then I let go of them again, and again, and again, until occasionally I succeeded. And then of course there were the times when music functioned as sitting meditation functioned, when music was all that existed in the moment. The moments when I was on stage singing or during rehearsals when I let rip with Born Under a Bad Sign. If it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have no luck at all. Not true for me, of course, Lindy notwithstanding, but the words of the song went beyond what they meant. Blues was always like that for me, I could sing any line and mean it in a way quite other than the words as normally defined. Blues was a medium through which I could simply be the sound of what I was singing. Ron and Steve told me that the loss of Lindy had given my vocals an extra edge and that I had developed from that point to delivering a vocal line that was vaguely shocking. Don't know how you did it, Vic, Ron commented with a puzzled shake of his head, but your vocals have got lethal. Thanks, Ron, but I don't sound any different in my own ears. Maybe, but I can see it in the faces of the audience when you start torturing the vocal line the way you do. It's like when I play a long howling bend. The audiences respond to your voice in the same way. It's like you're playing guitar with those notes sometimes. Well, I'm glad it sounds good. What do you think made the difference? asked Ron. Beats me. Steve moved his hands, looking at Ron in a way that betokened that perhaps this was not a happy subject to raise with me, even though it was complimentary. Ron failed to pick up on Steve's cue and said, I suppose it it could be Lindy. I suppose it could, I replied and changed the subject. But I think I'm mainly responding to what you and Steve are playing. You two are a huge inspiration. It's as if I was up there with cream. Yeah, laughed Ron, apart from the lack of ginger baker. Yes, well, I grinned rather faintly. All right, but Jack's improving, isn't he? A little, Ron replied with some exasperation. You know, you always defend him, but he always complains to us about having to be led by your tempo rubato. Maybe he has a point, I offered. Crap, Ron scoffed, and you know it. Yeah, Vic, Steve shrugged with a grin. Ron and I have no problems with your vocal line because there's a logic logic to it that we follow. What Ron's saying is that basically that Jack doesn't really deserve your support. Maybe not, i mused, but I don't see it in terms of fairness or whatever. I wouldn't like to get into making what he says affect what I say. And anyway, I don't see drums as being that significant. I could do without drums altogether, so I don't mind that he's simple or rudimentary or whatever. Ron and Steve both laughed, and Steve said, So, in the same breath, you've defended Jack and written him off altogether. Right, I laughed. Never said I wasn't paradoxical, but... What I'm saying about drums isn't personal about Jack. It's just that I tend to feel that percussion is superfluous. With most bands, they're just too loud. What I want to hear is the music rather than the banging. I feel it gets in the way of the melody. But the melody line needs punctuation, Ron explained. So I replied clapping my hands loudly between quiet words. Yes, Ron, I see what you mean. Ron and Steve both doubled up, laughing. There's no winning with you, is there? Ron hooted. Sorry, I responded, and actually was sorry. I really shouldn't try to tell you you two anything about music. As you know, I have a lot of my own weird ideas, so don't take any of it as if I think I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, Ron grinned. We know you're the kind of bloody saint who never gets shirty about anything, but we do take what you say seriously, even though you've never been able to study music. You live music, though, and that's the thing that makes the difference. So what you say always interests me. Maybe we should play one number each set without drums. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, why not? It could be interesting, but what would Jack do? Bugger Jack, Ron laughed. You first, I quipped which Ron rolled onto his side, almost in tears of mirth. But seriously, I continued, he'd need to have a role. Maybe I could play a harp duo with him, a train time, where I let him lead. He could call all the shots then, and I'd just follow whatever rhythms he played. And so we talked on into the evening, brimming with the ideas, each bouncing them off each other, and for a stretch of time there were no thoughts of Lindy. I thought about that on the ride home. It seemed peculiar that I could be free of thoughts of Lindy for periods of time and feel quite light-hearted. Maybe meditation made that possible. Was this some sort of sign of success, however small, I wish there was someone I could ask. Certainly I couldn't judge. I realised that I was seriously in need of a teacher. Ron and Steve could tell me where I was musically, but there was no one who could tell me where I was with Buddhism. The need of advice from a Lama, a Buddhist teacher, became ever more obvious.